0: Jim's going to be preaching um, and covering uh, several chapters of Joshua from like 13 to 19 uh, today. And I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from those chapters, particularly from 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon... The Maim, even all the Sidonites, sorry, Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from the from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for our inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for the inheritance to the nine tribes, and half the tribe. Manassas. And we'll go to one verse in Joshua 19. These are the inheritances of Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, distributed by the Lot and Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. The Word of God. You may be seated.
1: So, as I mentioned last week, uh, we're in a, a transition in the Book of Joshua. We have gone from the conquest to the allotment of the Promised Land, and I will be the first to admit that these chapters aren't the easiest to read. I mean, you go from from reading about all these exciting battles and miracles that that God is doing into you know every little boundary line and border and where where the Israelites, what tribes are going to go where. And it's not as much of a page-turner, maybe, as, as the previous 12 chapters. But it doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It just means that it's harder for us to put ourselves in the place of the original audience. And so this week I was kind of thinking about that. And I started thinking about the movie The Patriot. I'm sure most everybody has seen The Patriot. And the bad guy on The Patriot, you may remember, his name is Colonel William Tavington. And then he's the guy who goes and he, he, he kills women and children and burns down towns. And he does this in hopes of, of destroying the American morale. And so he's standing in this room uh, with his superior, realizing that because of the way he's fighting the war, he'll, he'll never be able to show his face in England again. And so his superior pulls out a map of the colonies and he, and he has this really famous line, tell me about Ohio. And you can imagine if, Britain had won the war how exciting it would have been for them to be able to divvy up all the colonies and and take it for themselves and then so you kind of take that mindset and then you think about the Israelites who are actually the good guys and they've never this is not some aristocracy here they've never owned their own land and so these chapters from 13 to 21 would have been incredibly exciting they're able to see where it is that they're going to be able to set up a home where they're going to raise their children and their grandchildren, where they're going to be buried. This, this would have been a very exciting portion of scripture for the Israelites. And we see that Joshua is now old. He has taken all the land that he has been told to take. He has taken the... the the mighty cities, and it doesn't mean that all the Canaanites have been displaced, that, that in part is what they're doing in divvying up the land between tribes, because each tribe now is supposed to clear their own land, but the task that Joshua has been given, he has been faithful to and he has fulfilled. And so what we have here in this passage is a people who have been given the promised land, but they still need to take hold of it. That's what's going on here. So if I I started out with a fictional war story, do you mind if I talk about a real one? Has anybody ever heard of the Battle of New Orleans? I'm curious. Raise your hand if you ever heard of the Battle of New Orleans. All right. So less than half, but it was the most famous battle of the War of 1812. It was uh, between the U.S. and Britain, and it was a decisive U.S. victory. But the interesting thing about this decisive battle is that it happened 30 days after the war had ended. So... So the the treaty at Ghent had already been signed. The, The land was irrevocably ours. The war was won, but there were still battles to fight. And if this isn't a picture of the Christian life, I don't know what is. Because in this passage, we have the Israelites who have been given the promised land, but they still need to take hold of it. And in the Christian life, we have been assured the better promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. But our job, our task, our call is still to take hold of it. And the theological term that we have for this is the already, not yet. We're living with the already. The war is won. We've been given the assurance of the better promised land, of the new heavens and the new earth. And an eternity with God in a body that that knows no limits of sin and pain and strife. That will not die. We've been given that assurance but we have not yet fully tasted and enjoyed the fruit of that victory. That's where the Israelites are, and that's where we are. And so that we can see there's some things in this passage that the Israelites are able to uh, gain confidence from, to be able to go into the promised land that is theirs, to be able to take hold of it. And they're the same things that should encourage us as we think in light of having been given and assured the better promised land and been given the call to take hold of it. And so those things that hopefully, that do encourage the Israelites, hopefully encourage us, are that God keeps his promises, that God guides his people, and then thirdly, that God gives them the victory. So that's what we're gonna be looking at in chapters 12 through 21. So first, God keeps his promises. There are three really specific promises that are being fulfilled in chapters 13 through 17 as the the first half of the tribes are being given their land at Gilgal. And the first promise I think is pretty obvious. They have the land. They have the land that had been promised to them way back to Abraham in Genesis 15. Look at the promise with me. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates the land of the Kenites the Kenazites the Kadmonites the Hittites the Perizzites the Rephraim, the Amorites the Canaanites the Girgashites and the Jebusites this was the promise given to Abraham. It was confirmed to his son Isaac, confirmed to his son Jacob, and now it's being fulfilled. So why, do we, why is it that I say now this, this promise is being fulfilled? You know, why don't we say that the promise is fulfilled the moment they cross the Jordan? Or why don't we wait and say that the promise has been fulfilled when all the Canaanites have, Canaanites have finally been taken care of and pushed out of this land? And the reason is because they're divvying up the land. You don't divvy up land that you don't possess. So this is the moment that we can say the Israelites, even if the whole, all the battles aren't finished, the war is won. They own this land. And if you understand the geography, you can see this even more clearly because what Joshua is doing is putting the stronger tribes on the borders. So you have Judah at the bottom, In the south, you have Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, half of the tribe of Manasseh on the east. And then you have Ephraim and the other half of the tribe of Manasseh in the north. So you have the, the strongest tribes are securing the border. And then you have the camp down at Gilgal in the east being moved into the interior and up higher at Shiloh. So you can see as they're distributing the land that it is theirs. They possess it. And we can say that the promise is being fulfilled. Secondly, the second promise being fulfilled is that Judah and Joseph are receiving the birthright. So Judah had become the most prominent of the 12 tribes. And obviously you probably realize that the the patriarch of the tribe of Judah is Judah, Jacob's son, Judah. But what's odd is that this is his fourth son, And typically the birthright would go to the first son. But the first three sons had eliminated their claim to the birthright because of their sin. Reuben slept with one of his father's concubines. And Simeon and Levi, they had led the massacre against the Shechemites. So they eliminated themselves. And then part of the blessing to the firstborn went to Judah. And notice I did say part. Because the other part of the blessing of the firstborn went to Joseph. Joseph, you, know, you notice there isn't just one tribe of Joseph. Joseph had two of his sons got the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's the portion that goes to Joseph. But Judah was still given the right of rule. Judah was going to be the prominent The prominent tribe. Look at Genesis 49, where Jacob is blessing his sons. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah is the tribe that is going to have prominence. Judah is the tribe that's going to bring forth the kings. Judah was going to bring King David, who would go and take Jerusalem, which is also in the tribe geographically of Judah. Judah was going to have Solomon, who would bring Israel to, wor- to be a world power. Judah was going to bring forth J- Josiah, who would bring about all the reforms in Israel. And eventually from Judah would come the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the third promise that's being fulfilled is that Caleb and Joshua, they're receiving their special inheritance in the form of cities. So you may remember that when Moses sent out his first team of scouts to go look at the promised land, all these people, these scouts, they came back and they said, there's no way we can do it. The people are too big. We're not going to be able to take this land. But only Joshua and Caleb believed that God could do what God said he would do, that he would provide this land over to the Israelites. And so Moses says to Caleb in Numbers 14, but my servant Caleb Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And so Caleb is awarded the city of Hebron. And then there's Joshua. In chapter 19, we read this. When they, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-serah in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and, set, and settled it. And so Joshua is awarded the city of Timnath-serah. So these promises, these, these things that the tribes and the country and these individuals are receiving, they aren't just the spoils of war. They are v- their fulfillment of very specific promises that God had made to his people. And they were special for a lot of reasons. You know, we talked about the fact that they've never had land before and they have land. They're going to get to settle. They don't have to, they don't have to fight anymore. They're, they get to rest from at least seven years of constant war. But it's easy to miss in this passage that there's another blessing here. If you look at who it is that they're receiving this inheritance from. You know, if you've ever received an inheritance, who you receive it from, it can add something to what you're actually receiving. In my office, there's a framed ticket that my grandmother gave me. And it was her ticket to go and watch the Apollo 11 uh, rocket launch that would bring men to the moon for the first time. And so my grandmother had a friend whose son was an astronaut and her friend knew that she was crazy about all things space. So she got to go over and watch this historic launch. And that love of the space program is something that my grandmother and I shared. And so she gave me this ticket. And I think this ticket is pretty cool in its own right, but it's more special to me than it would probably be to any of you because my grandmother gave it to me. And in the same way, this inheritance That Israel is receiving these promises that are being fulfilled. It's all the more special because they're receiving it from the one true God of the universe. Who chose them and loved them and promised them and is providing for them. People tend to look at the Old Testament and just see a bunch of laws. And there are laws in the Old Testament, but we can forget the foundation of everything we have in the Old Testament is built not on a law, but on a promise. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that makes a promise valuable? Because a lot of people look at a promise and they don't see a lot. But what makes a promise valuable is the promiser. So if I tell you, after this service, I want, I want you to go into my office And I have two season courtside Orlando Magic tickets and they're yours. I said maybe a few years ago that wouldn't have been all that great of a promise. But things are looking a bit better now. (laughs) And you can at least sell them if you don't like basketball. But what would give that promise value? There would only be value there if you trusted me. If you believed me that I was really going to come through on that promise. A promise only has value if the promisor is faithful and trustworthy. And this is the difference between a contract and a covenant. All right, The contract, it depends on the validity of the buyer. So if you can get enough money together and you can follow through on what you say you're going to do, then you can have this house. But a covenant doesn't depend on the value and the trustworthiness of the buyer. It depends on the value and the trustworthiness of the giver. That's that's why this is based on a promise. And this is where all of this comes together. I know we're having to do a lot of thinking this morning, but this is where it all comes together because do you remember that promise that we read from God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that he would give this land? That isn't a contract, it's a covenant. He makes a covenant with Abraham, Abram at that time. And then as was custom in these types of covenants, there were animals that were, that were sliced in half. And the, the front halves would have made a line on one side. The rear halves would have made a line on the other side. And then both parties would walk through. And they would symbolize, because, because it's on them, it's not on the other person, it's on the promise of the promisseur. Both parties would have walked through and they would declare when they do this, may this happen to my body if I don't follow through with what I said I was going to do. But what happens? God calls Abram to go to sleep. And God walks through. God walks through alone declaring, may this happen to my body, Abraham, if you and your descendants are not faithful to the covenant that we're making. And this is exactly what happens over the course of Israel. Israel is not faithful. They don't clear out all the Canaanites. They don't keep the law. They don't continue to worship. And the penalty goes On God the Son Jesus Christ, as just as they declared in that covenant, his body is broken for the unfaithfulness of his people, both past and future. This is the Christian message. The Christian hope is that we still get the better promised land because it's based on a promise that God will be faithful. It's not based on a contract that we need to do some things to be able to earn it, it's based on a promise. And this would have been incredibly motivating to the Israelites to go forward, to claim this promised land. And it should be very encouraging to us as well. And I'll be the first to admit that sometimes promises come slowly. You know, kind of like Christmas and birthdays come very slowly to children. You get a little older and birthdays start to come all too fast. Or maybe marriage seems to come slowly to the single. And sometimes children come slowly. Sometimes children leave very slowly. <laughs> but we have these promises, these hopes, these expectations that we wait for. And the moment that we can finally have the thing that we've been waiting for, what happens? All the waiting kind of just goes away. We forget that we ever had to wait because we, we have what it is that we've been promised and there will come a day when we have what we've been promised not just the already but the but the not yet and in that day we will forget all the waiting because we will be standing in the better promised land with our god in our glorified bodies for eternity we serve a god who keeps his promises and that should motivate us to go out and take hold of what it is that we're promised Secondly, we see that God guides his people. And this is a really interesting one for me because it kind of all clicked for me over the course of this week. But did you see the ways that the tribes were divided? There were kind of two different divisions. You had the first one at Gilgal. And it seems kind of pragmatic, doesn't it? I mean, it makes sense. We put the the strong tribes around the sides. You know, Moses made some promises to the tribes east of the Jordan. We're gonna keep that. Moses declared that Levi would not not have land. Their inheritance was to be the Lord. And so they would act as the priests for Israel. That makes sense. We're gonna go ahead and do that. But then you have the second division at Shiloh where they're doing what? They're casting lots. Casting lots for Simeon and Zebulon and Issachar and Asher and Naphtali and Dan. And so you have Joshua who's identified for the six tribes that are remaining, five areas of land, and then one grouping of cities inside the tribe of Judah, and they cast lots to see who goes where. I was thinking this week how nice would it be just to cast lots (laughs) I mean have this little coin on your desk that every time there was a tough decision in front of me just you know just flip the coin you know wouldn't it be nice if you had a coin let's see do I take this job yep you know do I marry this person do I do I join this church I mean it's scriptural right it's right there that's how we should make decisions God is clearly guiding his people through this process, but I want to see how it is that he's guiding them. Because there is something that we can learn from the way that the Israelites are being guided. But before I answer that question directly, I want to make two statements, that we two, two things clear that we have to understand about God guiding us. First of all, this term guide, guidance, in the Hebrew, often it comes from the word rope. It's a nautical term, which in English means I should probably say line. Not My grandfather would always say It's not a rope if you're in a boat. It's a line. Well, whatever. It's a, back then, I think they called it a rope. And so the rope would have hoisted the sail to be able to guide the boat in wind. If the wind got too strong, the rope would have lowered the sail. The rope would have secured it to a dock. And so when the Hebrews would think in terms of, of guidance, they would use a word that was rooted in rope. And that's the first thing I think that is helpful to know. The second thing that we have to understand when we talk about the guidance of God, how to be guided by God, is that we are free agents in this world whose decisions really matter, and God has determined every step we will take. We've got to hold that tension. We are really free agents whose decisions matter. They are real decisions. And God has determined every step that we will take. That's what the Bible says. And if we stray either to one side or the other side, finding the guidance of God begins to become pretty hard. I mean, if we start thinking it's all God, it's 100% God, 0% us, then what's going to happen? functionally, we don't matter anymore. And if it's all determined, I don't know if you're like me, I'm probably not gonna stop for two seconds to really ask for guidance if whatever it is that I'm gonna do has already been totally predetermined and I matter not. And on the other side, if it's 100% of me, if my destiny is what I make of it, if my future is in my hands, I think that is going to immediately freeze up half of this room. Because functionally now at this point, you're God. You're in charge of your life only without all the resources (laughs) to be able to be good at being in charge of your life. And none of us wants to be that. I mean, that might sound good for two seconds until we start thinking about all the things in our childhood or maybe in our teenage years or maybe in our 20s that we so deeply wanted but we didn't get. And now on the other side of that disappointment, Maybe it was a job that you didn't get, or a guy that you didn't get, or a girl that you didn't get. And now you look back and you're so thankful that you didn't get it. You're so thankful that God had a hand in this because He was leading you to a better place. So it's not 100% God, 0% us. It's not 100% us and 0% God. It's not 50 50. It's not 60 40. When we're talking about moving forward and pursuing the guidance of God, it's 100% God and 100% us. And we have to keep that intention if we're going to successfully walk into this, this thing we call the guidance of God. All right, so those are the two things I want to be clear. Now we get to the actual question What does it look like for the Israelites? To get the guidance of God. And what can we learn from that? Wisdom. The Israelites are allotting this land through wisdom. From top to bottom. This is a wisdom issue. That's how all the tribes are allocated. And wisdom can be gained uh, in different ways. I mean certainly we can gain wisdom from years and experience and other people. But at the core of the Christian message. Wisdom is Holy Spirit-powered mind renewal, all right? I want to say that again because it's really important. Wisdom is Holy Spirit-powered mind renewal. That's what's going on here, and that's what should be going on for us. And probably the most famous or well-known verse on this is Paul writing in Romans 12, where he says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So God has rooted wisdom in this Holy Spirit mind renewal primarily through digesting the word of God. And Tim Keller, he says there's three parts of of the Word. You have the milk of the Word. You know, these would be the the most basic Christian teachings. You have the meat of the Word, which would be the the deeper theological truths. And then you have the hard candy of the Word. This is like the, the wisdom books that just take time to dissolve. And we need to have the power of the Holy Spirit inside us as we digest all three parts of the word. And the more we do that, the more wise we become and the more able we are to make good decisions. Many of you are probably familiar with the proverb 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And many, many of us, we can think that what that's saying is if you pray that God blesses your plans, that he's gonna bless your plans and you're gonna be successful. But that's not what this proverb is saying. This proverb is saying if you commit yourself to the Lord holy, commit yourself to his spirit, commit yourself to his word, then you're going to begin to make better decisions. You're going to be wiser. You're going to be smarter. Wisdom comes from committing yourself to the Lord the way that Joshua did. And so I'm sure many people are thinking at this point, well, Jim, what about this lot casting that we were looking at? It seems like that somehow goes above and beyond wisdom. Well, let me make two points about this lot casting. First, nowhere in the New Testament is lot casting prescribed to us. Second, as we look at this lot casting, it's only after all wisdom has been exhausted Have you noticed that? Joshua goes out and he observes the land. He divides up the land in a way that would be good for the small tribes. It would be good for Israel. He exhausts all his wisdom. And then basically he's drawing straws between these tribes, which is not an unchristian practice. You know, if I've got four toys and four kids and my wisdom is exhausted, we're drawing straws. (laughs) I think the first division, the second division, is just as much wisdom-based as the first division. And I love seeing the way this wisdom plays out thousands of years ago. Because in one case, you have these five daughters of Zelophehad who had died. He had died and he didn't have any sons. He had left five daughters. And so they make the appeal to Joshua that we should be able to inherit the land. These are females. We should be able to inherit the land or else our, the name of our father is going to be forgotten in our tribe forever. And what happens? They're able to inherit the land. Women, thousands of years ago, being able to inherit and own land. 160 years ago in the United States of America, that wasn't even allowed. But thousands of years ago in Israel, you had women inheriting land. So I don't want anybody to tell me that the Bible has a low view of women. It took the United States of America thousands of years to catch up. Because when wisdom, biblical wisdom, is embraced in a group of people, that group of people has a higher value for everyone made in the image of God. So when we think in terms of being guided by God, here's what, here's what I would guard you against. Just, just in every decision, asking yourself, what is the will of God? What is the will of God for me in this decision? And certainly the will of God is a biblical term and I don't, I don't wanna cast it out completely, but what we can do when we begin to think, what is the will of God? In every one of these situations is paralyze ourselves and say, there's, there's one thing that God has for me and oh my goodness, if I don't pick it, then I'm in big trouble. Because what we see in Joshua's life isn't this paralyzing, oh my goodness, I've gotta pick this one thing, this one thing that God has for me, I'm not sure what it is. What we see is a man and a people who are committing themselves fully to God in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing God's will, making a godly decision, making the godliest decision they can make and then trusting him, trusting him that he's gonna continue to work even after the decision has made because God guides his people. And if we do this, if we commit ourselves to God, if we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and we digest all parts of his word, we're in a community of believers, we're praying, then we are going to be able to say both in the already and in the not yet, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's where God wants to guide us. So God keeps his promises, he guides his people, and then finally, God gives victory at the end of our passage in chapter 21 we see this great verse and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers not one of all their enemies had withstood them and here it is for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands so who gave over the enemies god it's god who's fighting for his people we talked a lot about this when we went over at chapter 10 the lord gives us our victories and in the christian life there are different kinds of victories but what joshua is dealing with here is victory in terms of this battle for the land and the land again isn't totally conquered yet but it's functionally conquered joshua has been faithful to do everything that he has been called to do now the task of the Israelites is to maintain that land and to continue that work inside all their tribes, which is, of course, the beginning of Israel's demise because they aren't faithful to that task. And it struck me as odd this week. I was thinking about it and thinking about all these big battles that Israel had won, like major towns, major armies, and now all that's left are these, these little cities that should be easy to conquer. The, the earlier battles, the big ones came easy, but now these smaller ones are the ones that are so difficult. And then I began to think, well, isn't that kind of true of the Christian life? You know, how many of us, for, the victories came easier in the beginning. And then you walk for some years and the victories can seem harder. Because in the beginning we have this big conversion, this big heart change, we have this massive change in habits. We're, we're making priority in time for, Bible, for reading our Bible, for praying, for being with other Christians. We're coming to church. But then over time, the Christian life can become more mundane. We can see addictions start to creep back up. We can see doubts come back in. We can begin to see ourselves making decisions that we never thought we would make in the beginning of our Christian life. My goodness, if Israel in this passage could see Judges chapter 1, I don't think they would have believed it could have even been true. But that happened just one generation after what we're reading here. But it's in these times when we look at ourselves and we, the victories seem to get harder and harder that God is calling us back and God is wanting to renew our minds by helping us to understand the victory that he has yet to attain for us, yet to fulfill for us in the not yet. And so what I want to do, wherever we are this morning, if the victories seem to be getting harder, I want us to look at the victory that is coming for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And I want to do that by going all the way to Revelation chapter 7. When we feel down, when we are doubting, when we feel devastated, we can be called back by the victory that is ours if we remain faithful. Revelation 7. And all heard the number of the sealed, that is, those sealed with the Holy Spirit, believers hundred and forty-four thousand sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Isaacar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph of 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with loud voices salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb do you see what's going on here We have the 12 tribes in our passage that fail, and we have the 12 tribes of all of God's people that are victorious in Jesus Christ. And it can be a little confusing to understand what's going on with this 144,000, but obviously that's not literal because in in verse nine, John is saying, actually, the number was too great to even count. The number was too great a multitude to even count. But if you understand apocalyptic, ancient apocalyptic language you know that 12 communicates something and it communicates completeness and fullness and so you have 12 of each of the tribes of 12 it's no it's no coincidence that you have 12 tribes and 12 apostles and then these 12 tribes again and then in ancient apocalyptic language the number 1,000 just means big big so you have a thousand of these 12s And what is God communicating to us? That there will be a day when all of us are a part of this great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and language, tribe, tongue, and nation, that we will come together and they will all together say, worthy is the lamb in his presence in the new heaven and the new earth in our glorified bodies, not hindered by sin in any way. And in that moment, every doubt every pain, every strife that we have experienced in the already as we're waiting for the not yet will instantly be wiped away. So how is it that that victory that God is winning for us in Jesus Christ can help us now in the already? I can think of about a 100 off the top of my head, but I wanna finish just by narrowing down on two. How does this victory affect us? First, I think it should make us excited about being a part of building this kingdom. Again, it's, it's not just God working. Are, he has designed it that we are real parts of this. It's 100% God and 100% us and we get, the, we get to play a part in the building of this Revelation 7. And our little part of this building block of the kingdom is called Orlando Grace Church. And we have to believe that there are people in our midst Monday through Saturday, who if they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are going to believe and they're gonna join this faith family. And so the question is, are we willing to take hold of the kingdom in that way? Are we willing to go and get them and be a part of building this Revelation 7 kingdom? Secondly, and lastly, it should motivate us to desire that our little part of the kingdom looks like the big one. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And, and I want to be heard very clearly here. I am not calling for an affirmative action in the church. That's not what I'm calling. I'm calling that we would desire for our church to look like Revelation 7. That's all. And, and in that, if we're, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, why is it that lots of people groups in our midst are not coming through these doors. Are there things we can do to better engage these people? And I'm not asking anybody to apologize for the color of our skin. Everybody's color of their skin is beautiful, but we, we need to pray. Are there ways we can engage people in our community who don't look like us? And if I can give you one story of how I think this is going well in our midst... There are a number of people who see that there are people in our midst who do not speak English as their primary language. They speak Spanish. And God has been moving in the hearts of a few people in our midst to see what we can do about providing live translations or or dubbed sermons and begin to more effectively reach out to the Spanish-speaking culture. And I love this for so many levels, least of which because I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) It wasn't staff-led. This is the Spirit of God moving in people to build this kingdom, But I love it because it's driving us to engage people that don't look like us that aren't gonna be easy to reach because we know what Revelation 7 looks like and we want to at least try by God's grace to emulate what he has told us that his kingdom will look like. If we're going to take hold of what God is promising to us we have to believe deeply that it's God who's going to give us this victory. So where where are you hindered today in taking hold of what is promised to you? Let me ask this in a different way. In what ways is the inheritance that is coming your way not clear and compelling? Because if it's not clear and compelling, then then God's call on your life today is Holy Spirit, mind renewal, that the inheritance will become clear. And we can know that that inheritance has value because the promiser has secured it for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who deserved the inheritance of an heir, of a first son. And then we who deserved the inheritance of God's wrath Jesus stepped in and he took the inheritance of wrath for us so that we could have the inheritance of an heir. And if our promiser is that serious that we would receive that inheritance, then he will also make that clear and compelling wherever we are today. The war has been won. The battles remain, but the war has been won and we have to have that in our mind every day if we are going to be fruitful and successful in the already as we patiently await the guaranteed not yet. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful to be able to come here As Chuck said, stepping out of busy lives, confusing lives, in some cases painful lives, that you would draw us into worship Sunday after Sunday to focus us and send us and fuel us on the mission that you've called us to and sent us out to be a part of. So I pray that this inheritance that we have in the not yet would be be more clear today than it was yesterday here in the already, and that we would be motivated and joyful and desire to be a part of this kingdom building, knowing that one day we will be a part of this Revelation 7 kingdom who will sing together across every boundary that we know in this world, worthy is the Lamb. We thank you and we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.